All it takes is a click to listen to RTI online. Get exercise for your finger and exercise for your mind at english.rti.org.tw. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Up ahead this hour, it's Stroke of Light, Eye on China, and Chinese to Go. But we start off this Thursday with Here in Taiwan. Hello and welcome to Here in Taiwan. Today is Thursday, February 28th. I'm John Van Trieste, and joining me here in the studio today, it is Shirley Lin. Hi, John. And Paula Chow. Hello. Up next, we bring you two stories of ring trouble. One story of someone who can't seem to find their ring, and the other of someone who just can't get their ring off. Then, rediscovering a mysterious patch of forest wilderness. And could the Formosan clouded leopard, an animal believed by some to be extinct, still be out there in the wild? Some seem to believe so. We'll be hearing that story in just a moment. Stick around. All right. So, as promised, we begin today with ring trouble. It's a issue that seems to be going around these days. Is that right, Paula? Right. Uh, let's talk about um, the story that recently happened in Taiwan. In Tainan City, there is a bride to be. Um, she lost her um, three thousand U.S. dollar diamond ring, and then she also lost lost another ring. So she actually, what she actually did is um, she um, designed a poster, and she you know put the poster, and then she also you know. Um, asked police to um, help her find the ring. In the poster, she said, this is, this, is, this is a place where I lost my ring, and this is the area. If you are able to you know, find the ring, she said she's really great for that. And she also said that, well, her, um, her fiancé says um, he is going to um, you know, separate. Separate what? Separate from her. Because he, she lost the right. ring? Right. Well, but I think that's, oh, wow. that, that's just a way to attract you know, public attention. So he's going to separate from her if she can't find it? Or if just... she can't find it. Oh, wow. But, but, but I don't so think a... that she takes it seriously. It's just <laughs> one way to attract public attention. Okay. But I find it quite surprising because she um, even, you know, went to the police station and asked the police to um, help her find the lost right. ring. But the police did say that, well, we will, you know, check the CCTV footage. And then, you know, in the poli one policeman also said, the place where she lost her ring, well, there was um, lots of traffic. It might mm. be hard to find the ring, but well, the police would do the best um, they could. She can remember about the area where she lost it, though, which is usually when you lose something like that, you don't know where like it, where it fell off or, you know, it fell off without you noticing it. So right, because it's surprising she, that right, she remembers. Right, because, because she uh, went to one place to do some grocery shopping with her um, fiancé. And on the card, you know, she actually had her rings. And then she, all of a sudden, she said why she wants to use um, hand cream. So she took off her ring and then, you know, she walked, oh, um, you know, got off the that. car and then she couldn't find it. Okay. Well, maybe it's in the car then. Uh, I mean, she searched like everywhere. She couldn't find it. Right. Mm. But anyway, I, I think it's kind of, you know. So she hasn't found it yet. Right. She That's... hasn't found it yet. Right. Hmm. Well, At reporting time. So she lost two rings, though. You said, how did she manage that? I mean, not just one. I she think said, she took that. She took both. Both um, of them both and lost them at once. Yes. Oh, right. Okay. Wow. Oh dear. Well, while some people have 
rings that just can't seem to stay around when they need them. Other people have rings that they just can't seem to get rid of. <laughs> right. This happened、um, in the States, and it's a story about a Chinese woman, and she lives in Los Angeles. Before、um, Valentine's Day,、um, she received a gift from her husband, and the husband, you know, went went to Los Angeles to see her, and he gave her a ring, and it's also a brand name product, and that ring cost seventeen hundred、um, U.S. dollars, so it's quite pricey. So she was pretty happy, and she wore the ring. And however, for some reason, I think she、um, gained some weight after a week or two. And then she couldn't, you know,、take、she couldn't、off. take it off. So that that was a trouble. No matter how hard she tried, she couldn't take it off. So、um, guess what she actually did? She went to hospital and she asked hospital to she asked、um, doctors、it. to to help her. Well, in the beginning, the, the doctors promised that that they will keep the ring intact. They will do the best they can to,、oh. to keep the ring intact. But but anyway, finally they just they couldn't find a way to do that. So they they actually use a saw to. Cut the ring by half. So I wonder if that also ended in a separation. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, well, you know that、um, the service offered by the the doctor costs、um, the woman ten thousand U.S. dollars. Fortunately, well, she has insurance. Still, she has to pay two thousand U.S. dollars. Wow. But guess what? Her husband is so nice to her. Instead of blaming her,、um, he actually bought another ring for her, and then he also gave her another gift. And he gave her、ring. a necklace. I think、too. a necklace is a better idea after <laughs>、right. all of this. I mean, that costs more than the ring itself to have it removed. Wow! Wow! Some years ago, an unspoiled patch of forest wilderness was found in Taiwan's mountains, and、uh, now, after a long time of not really being sure where it is or what's in there, I, an expedition has set off to document it, and they found quite some quite interesting things. Yeah, we're talking about this forest. It's about one hectare wide, and it was first discovered in 2007, but back then the location was not recorded. And so there was no record of it. And why they did that expedition back then was to determine whether it was going to be possible to restore this historic trail to that area, which was actually created back in the Qing Dynasty.、Mm-hmm. So it's historical. It's a historic trail, <laughs>、right. but、uh, and, as as you know, the trail I guess in that section was unrestored, and、uh, so you end up with a beautiful unspoiled patch of forest. Right. And、um, so this is、uh, in Yushan National Park, and、um, it's known that it includes like three three really gigantic trees taller than sixty meters. And、um, anyway, so recently,、um, a, a female、uh, forestry expert, Xu Jiajun, she's an assistant researcher at the Taiwan Forestry Research Institute, really, really wanted to find this patch of forest, you know, and and, and document it. So、um, she actually went、uh, on a seven-day hike. It was like eighty-kilometer hike into the mountains with a mountaineering team, not by herself. And they found it.、Oh. They actually found it. So the three trees:、uh, one is Taiwanese spruce, and there are two Taiwanias. With you know, it's the the only 
plant species with the word Taiwan in its generic name.、Mm. So we can be proud of this. Two Taiwanias with diameters of 2.3 meters to 3.5 meters that stood 63 meters to 64 meters tall. Some huge trees. So yeah, we're talking about like as high as a 20-story building.、Mm-hmm. Okay, so try to picture that. So the Taiwania is actually among the tallest tree species in Asia, and that is why the Rukai people, one of the Aboriginal groups here in Taiwan, they call it the tree that hits the moon. What got her curious about, and and in the fact that she insisted on finding this patch of,、uh, of、um, forest, is because、um, she watched this report about the exploration、uh, for this historic trail, the Ba Tong Guan Historic Trail in the National Park back in two thousand seven, to which the Yushan National Park headquarters said that they found a Taiwania, and which actually took more than twelve people with outstretched arms to wrap around it, wrap around the trunk.、Mm-hmm. So,、um, but then you know. Unfortunately, at that time, nothing was recorded and everything. So, good thing that they found it. Well,、um, there's a slight little、uh, change though, because when they found that Taiwania, it, it lost its top, probably to a lightning strike, and so now the tree only stands at 47 meters tall instead of like. More than sixty、well, meters tall, but still, that's at least still. by natural causes. It's better than having the whole thing logged down or <laughs>、oh, something yes, like that. Oh yeah, true, true, true.、Um, yeah, and of course, as you said, it's in a national park, right? So、mm. it can be well protected and safe and tucked away in its mountain home. Right. Speaking of rare and precious wildlife,、uh, it's the Formosan clouded leopard. Now there is a specimen of this. In the National Taiwan Museum, it's a taxidermied specimen. I'm not sure if any, either of you have seen it before, but it's a very interesting-looking animal. It looks like a beautiful cat, you know, a、of. big kind of cat, like a cross between a leopard and a and a, and a cat, <laughs> a house cat, right? A house cat. Well, it's got,、yeah. it's got spots, right? Yes, and、uh, it's it can get pretty large.、Mm. Um, and but unfortunately, though, none have been verified in the wild since 1983. That is the last time that an officially recognized sighting was made. Uh, and people have been looking for it for a long time, but、uh, now it looks like、uh, it's people are still holding out hope for it because、uh, about a month ago the Forestry Bureau released its schedule of protected wildlife, which is I guess they update regularly, and people were paying attention as to whether this leopard would still be on it or if they would finally give up after more than thirty years and declare it extinct. Uh, and it looks like it's still on the list. And in fact,、uh, there have been some recent claimed sightings of this leopard in, I believe, it was Taichung County in Taiwan's far southeast. So it, it could be still, it could still be out there. But they're known for being very sly and difficult to、uh, capture. One well-known ecologist spoke to a local indigenous elder who said that it would take ten hunters to surround a leopard from all sides in order to even have a chance of capturing one. Like they're、oh. very fast and sneaky. Sne- okay.、Um, okay. And I guess that explains why so many expeditions that have set out in search of them have come up with nothing.、Uh, from 1999 to 1993, two academics here in Taiwan led a field survey looking for these. Uh, animals, along with other animals too. So I guess they didn't come up completely empty-handed, but、uh, they were in the Dawusha Nature Reserve. And over those years, they had 400 cameras that captured 16,000 photos, and there were also more than 200 scent stations that were in place continuously. Not a trace of these leopards turned up. And then again, there was a 13-year-long survey from 2001 to 2013, and that was a Taiwan-U.S. joint effort.、Uh, again, nothing. So,、uh, a, a group of scientists—the group of scientists that was behind that 
declared the leopard extinct, extinct. in 2013. Oh, okay. Part of the reason that Taiwan maybe hasn't done so is that uh, there's no mechanism for doing that here, surprisingly. Uh, that's according to Xiaorongsheng, who's director of the Forestry Bureau's Conservation Department. Uh, but she says that in the future, they're going to have to, you know, academics and experts are going to have to make arrangements to decide what they're going to do with it. Apparently, whether people believe it's out there or not uh, is not the whole reason why they haven't gone and just declared it extinct. Another reason is that it would upset a lot of people, it turns out. Uh, people sort of have this idea of this animal as a very proud representative of Taiwan's, you know, wildlife. wildlife. And people are also concerned about uh, what people would say, which is surprising from scientists because, you know, you think of them as very rational and fact-based. But uh, I guess uh, one academic here makes the point that there's no way to prove that it's not out there anymore either. And in fact, there are those who think there's a good chance that we will find someone eventually. Uh, Liu Chongxi, who is a, a, an ecologist with National Taidong University's Department of Life Sciences, and the one who interviewed the indigenous elder we mentioned earlier, is one of those who thinks that these leopards are still out there somewhere. And so I'm not sure. I think it will take a lot of resources, certainly a lot more than 16,000 photos and 400 cameras to find them. But uh, if if we're lucky, you know, you never know. You might just find one. It may no longer just be, you know, a stuffed specimen in a museum. Well, I hope so, yeah. Actually, it's a beautiful animal, but I wouldn't want to be near it probably, because it seems like a vicious animal too. Probably, maybe not the most friendly of animals, sure. Yeah. But you know, like like uh, these academics are saying, people still think of it, even thirty years on from the last confirmed sighting, as a real good representative of Taiwan. Well, that just about does it for today's edition of Here in Taiwan. I'm John Van Trieste. I'm Shirley Lin. And I'm Paula Chow. Don't go anywhere just yet. Coming up next, it's Stroke of Light, Eye on China, and Chinese to go. or comment about one of our programs at RTI, send us a letter at PO Box 123-199 Taipei, Taiwan, or email us at english at rti.org.tw. Stroke of Light, a portrait of Taiwan through the eyes of painters, sculptors, filmmakers, and photographers. Hello and welcome back to Stroke of Light. I'm Jake Chen. This week, we're heading back to a familiar spot in Taipei City 
Two Mindset Art Center, where this new exhibition has just launched. Titled Concurrencies, it is a combination of paintings and sculptures. The paintings are a series of side-profile portraits of what looks like women of different age and of different ethnic backgrounds. There is a lot of similarities from the get-go.、Uh, most of the women are looking off to the side instead of directly to the viewers. The women themselves are painted in a quite realistic manner. We can see the freckles and all the imperfections on their skin.、Uh, we can see the details on their jewelry and their clothing. But interestingly enough, some of the some parts of the women's hair are missing, and it is as if the hair is gradually morphing and blending into the background. As to the background, it is overwhelmingly brown and gray. This very unsaturated combination of colors. We can see vague lines that represent mountains and rivers, but none is presented in a very precise manner. So what we have is a set of realistic paintings, accentuated by almost impressionist backgrounds. As to the sculptures, they are even more interesting. Looking from afar, it looks like we're looking at a group of white cubes, but when I walk closer, I can clearly see that there are a lot of textures to the cube. In fact, they're all small bundles of cloth. And through her crafty hands, the artist was able to shape them all into this cubical shape, while leaving the inside of the cube open, allowing us to peek inside and see the intricate details. The artist herself is Hannah Pattyjohn. She is a Filipino-American painter and sculptor currently studying in Texas, U.S. Coming from two drastically different backgrounds, and nowadays traveling frequently between the two. Gives Miss Pattyjohn a very unique perspective on her own identity and on that of many other immigrants. So, for this exhibition, as well as over the course of her career, Miss Pattyjohn has gradually channeled this very complex feeling and sentiment into her art. In her own words, this process of creation is also an effort to make sense and deepen the understanding of her own constantly shifting identity. As well as of that of many women who have similar experience like her. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Ms. Hannah Pattyjohn, and I started by asking that one question that fascinates me as always: how she grew up, as in what kind of influence she had during her childhood, and what drew her to art.、Um, let's start with I think. The one element that I'm really interested in, in, in pretty much every artist that I meet, is the origin, sort of where the ideas and inspiration come from.、Um, I learned that both your parents are working clay artists.、Yes. Yeah, so how have they influenced you, not just in terms of a career path, but over the years, the things and elements that you pay attention to?、Um, I feel like growing up around like ceramics made me feel that it was really important to learn how to. Like express my ideas three-dimensionally,、mm -hmm. um, and to work with space. So I think even just starting out, I wanted to work with installations as well as paintings. Okay.、Um, and then I also think that like、uh, it made me want to like express texture in my paintings. That it was important for me to sort of see 
paint as like a tactile medium and not just like a flat, like shiny surface, but something that I could express texture and yeah. And you sort of began to have this very uh, uh, sensitive eye to sort of the texture of porcelain and clay at a very young age, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it made it like very important to me. Okay. Yeah. So getting into art was almost like a no-brainer once you get a chance to study in university. Uh, yeah, um, I liked it right away. I, I was like unsure about what I wanted to do, but as soon as I got into like the art school, like I loved it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. sounds great. Um, in one of the literature, one piece of literature that I've read um, for your, I think, previous exhibition, also here at Mindset Art Center, you said that traveling uh, was a great way for you to learn yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you are a Filipino-American, mm -hmm. so I'm guessing a lot of the travels is between the Philippines and the, the U.S. Yes. Um, what are sort of the, some of the events or experiences that you still remember that help you deepen that self-understanding? Um, I think just being away from the Philippines made me sort of like really aware of what my, like it made me think about what home meant to me like being able to see it from a distance like made me sort of examine it and try to explore like this idea of like what home is like and it made me see maybe things that were wrong with the Philippines mm -hmm. and things that like I liked about it and how that like tied into myself and my identity if okay. that makes sense yeah yeah oh yeah definitely and then works the other way around as well yeah, like, yeah. I'm guessing when you look at the states from the Philippines side it looks different than when you are yeah. actually in the states right yeah um out of curiosity, um, how does the Philippines look when you're away from it? Like, how different, uh, how differently does it look? Um, it's just, um, I feel like it's so tied into my identity. Like, I really see myself as Filipino. So, it's like, it's, it's really a, a part of me and it's hard to, like, see it objectively when I'm there. But then when I'm away, then I realize, like, there are parts of it that, coincide with who I am and then parts of it are just like parts of myself are just sort of like influenced by the environment does mm -hmm. that make sense yeah I'm, I'm guessing you spend the, the vast majority of your uh, youth and your teenage and college years in the Philippines right yes um, yeah. yeah so I guess you, you would be I, I think more accustomed to the culture of the music and, and the way people sort of the way people behave yeah, yeah. okay um, wow so the difference when you travel to a Western country, it's got to be pretty uh, clear from the get-go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the thing that, um, the difference that really strikes me is being in Texas, like I feel like I'm really able to hear myself think. Like it's very quiet there and very like boring. So I'm able to like hear my thoughts while in the Philippines, like, you know, it's like I'm so involved in like the environment. Yeah. Because it's like noisy and it's like, crowded and it's like really visually stimulating oh yeah yeah so that's something that's really interesting to me yeah. i could imagine just the the vast and somewhat empty landscape of texas as right. far as i know compared to um for example manila where it's crowded and, and humid and dense all the time it's mm -hmm. got to be so so different um so um that experience that's a life experience how does that sort of how you channel that into your work and how does it influence you yeah, so I guess since like my thoughts about it are so like complicated and like um, I guess in my work I try to like sort that out and understand it. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a way for me to like think about who I am and where I'm from. Okay. So painting and making sculpture is almost like a self uh, 
understanding process right, yeah. for you. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's fabulous. <laughs> um, the term, I think, it fascinates, it fascinates me as well because I'm a first-generation immigrant myself. Uh, migrant mentality was mentioned in, in several pieces of literature that I've seen uh, throughout that, that has to do with the work exhibited throughout your career. Um, why is this notion so important to you? Um, it's just really compelling to me. Uh, like growing up in the Philippines, I didn't really know many people who had lived away from like the Fili like who had migrated into the Philippines. Okay. Except my father. He was like the only person that I really knew. So like when I got to North America, I just met so many people who were from different places. And it was just really interesting, like really compelling for me. Yeah, to like think about these yeah. things. <laughs> and in terms of, and I guess it's a, when I say mentality is also a feeling and a sentiment, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, what does it feel like, uh, for instance, for you yeah. to be someone from the outside? Yeah, it's, it's just, it's just something that you're always aware of, maybe. Like, it's just, it's, it's like, you can never, like, I feel like you can never really fully relax. Like, yeah, there's just this feeling of, like, unsureness. Yeah. Is, is there a sense of heightened uh, self-consciousness? Because you clearly, you, um, you are a bit different from, say, people from other parts of yeah, the Yeah, I think so, yeah. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so, um, I, I guess a lot of that comes channeled into your current exhibition, which I'm fascinated about. Um, let's start with the title. Um, concurrency, as far as I know, is a mathematical term. Um, it has to do with probably my education. But um, why choose concurrencies as the title of your work this time? Yeah, um, so the definition is like uh, circumstances or events happening at the same time. Yeah. Um, and this in this situation, it's sort of like um, I applied it to the idea of like thinking about the stories of all of these women who I painted, mm -hmm. and how like all their stories converged onto like one place, North America. Yeah. But then also like how a lot of their stories were so similar, but also different. Yeah, like how there were just similar aspects and similar like emotions. What are some of the similar aspects and emotions that these uh, subjects all have? Uh, well, they all migrated from uh, other places to North America. Sure. Yeah, and like they all have like a kind of like self-awareness about being an immigrant. Okay. Yeah. Being in a new place doesn't just mean a new geographic background. More so, it is a feeling of being surrounded by people who look different, who speak a different language, and who are of a different culture. That can certainly give a person a completely different sense of self-awareness and self-identity. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Ms. Hannah Pattyjohn on the subject matter, so please stay tuned. For Stroke of Light, I'm Jake Chen. China, first-hand perspectives on a quickly changing society. Hello and welcome to Ion China. I'm Natalie So. 
China has a generation of little emperors or only children. What are these people? Many of them all grown up now. Like today, I speak with Mei Feng, the award-winning author of One Child: The Story of China's Most Radical Experiment. Feng tells us what she discovered about this generation. First, let me preface by saying it's always very tricky writing about a generation, right? Because you can't extrapolate from that and say every person in this mm, particular generation is going to be like this or that. What you can say is. Every generation has certain traits which distinguish it from every other generation before.、Mm-hmm. You know, so for example, the baby boom generation, what distinguishes it from, say, the millennials? For China, the what they call the 八零后 and 九零后 the 80s and the 90s. Obviously, one of the things that distinguishes them from every other generation is the one-child policy, especially for those in、um, urban areas. So when I went into asking the big question. What does it mean for a nation when you have so many、um, only children? Will it, for example, create a nation of entitled, spoiled brats? And if it does, what are some of these effects on the nation as a whole in terms of economic growth,、um, or it, does it not? So I looked in a lot of、um, social scientist data and studies on that. Among this bucket of research,、um, there was one in particular I found interesting because it was done by Australian economists very recently. And instead of using behavioral studies, which most of these others had done, you know,、uh, surveys,、uh, they played games measuring psychological,、um, you know, reactions. You know, games to measure your risks, appetite for risks, your appetite for altruism, whether you shared more, whether you were more optimistic. And what they concluded was there were quite some sharp differences that the one-child generation was markedly less optimistic, more pessimistic, really less altruistic. That we、um, can't even imagine. But so, do you know why they might be less optimistic?、Um, I think the less optimistic, and and this is the part where we veer into what I think versus actual right, data right, right. out there from my my many interviews. And my theory on that is is because. There is a huge amount of pressure and expectation on them as an only、mm-hmm. child,、mm-hmm. and I think this is different from people arguing the only child syndrome in other countries because you're talking about an entire nation. So a lot of the effects are particular and specific to China. So for one is, I mean, the oldest of the one-child generation are no longer children; they're in your thirties. So you know, multiply parents in their fifties and sixties. The expectations for them, you know, in terms of having to take care of their aging population, is huge. Secondly, as the only child,、um, everything is focused on them.、Uh, you know, so you know the expectations of success, for marriage, and so on are, are particularly concentrated and focused. And thirdly, because this generation is peculiar, because the parents before that, many of them came from, say, the Cultural Revolution. They went through a lot of hardship. So I, when I interviewed a lot of these、um, single children, one of the things they kept saying was, "We have to fulfill our parents' expectations because our parents didn't get all the chances we did. Many、mm. of them maybe didn't get to go to college because the Cultural Revolution closed all the schools, and so now they really want us to go to college and fulfill the road." That we didn't have. So one of the things I talk about in the book was、um, there was a talk show host in China, and she actually invited single children to write her letters, you know, about what they thought. And many of them expressed this sort of a deep 
um, depression or oppression, you know, like I, my parents expect so much of me. I have so much pressure. Um, I, my parents only eat vegetables all day, all week. And then they only save all the nice expensive meats and delicious food for when I go home on a weekend from school so that I can have a lovely meal. But I feel so guilty, you know, that sort Aww. of thing. Or, um, you know, some boy will be like, I, I live in a dorm in the city and my mother wakes up every morning and before she goes to work, she comes to my dorm and, and tidies up for me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, and I feel so bad and guilty and all this there's a sense of that so in you know in terms of generations these this generation has a tendency to label themselves quite negatively they call themselves t- terms like diaosu or which is a kind of a vulgar slang for loser or yeah. uh kubi, which describes like a et- attitude of depression in a sense I mean, my, part of it you could argue is young people just being very, you know, you know, negative, negative uh, right. which is very functional. But I do see some specific changes, and I also see it in in it, um, sh- demonstrated in the society. For example, um, one of the things I noticed was um, some of these major companies will actually put in their advertisements: uh, "We prefer applicants with siblings." We wow. don't want only children. And then when I talk to some of them, then they say, well, it's because, you know, say this job involves a lot of travel. And we find that when we hire people, only children, the parents tend to object and they tend to quit very soon after. So we, we don't want. And of course, China has no workplace discrimination law. So they can explicitly say, right. we don't want only children. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, it seems like um, a lot of disadvantages for these children. You would think that they have all the resources, well, they all do the have love. some terrific advantages. <laughs> To which, you know, I think even the world gets to see or enjoy. For example, this has been a huge explosion of graduates or, or students from China to to rest of the world. In the U.S., the Chinese international student population is by far the largest. Mm-hmm. So many universities and institutions of learning are huge beneficiaries of this because they pay full tuition. Right. So that's one of the things we do see. Um, and that is, a you know, a benefit um, that, that they have had. But at the same time, I, because I taught at the University of Southern California for three years, and many of my students were mainland Chinese, and many of them had told me that they sort of felt like being in the U.S. was a brief time of freedom for them. You know, after the horrible gao kao and the suffering, this was their period to be free, to to experiment. But there was always a sense that they would probably have to go back home and fulfill their parental expectations. Um, there, I mean... One of the people I profiled in the book was this guy who decided, he and his wife decided to sell the apartment his parents had given them and buy an RV and drive around the world and do put their stuff on YouTube and Instagram. And what he said was, uh, and, and he has, has quite a substantial following. Oh, he also has some substantial criticism against him from people in China who say, you are disappointing your parents. How dare you sell the apartment that they gave you? What are you, you're an unfilial son. And if you imagine somebody from the States or anyone else doing that, they would probably not have that kind of criticism. There's an right. expectation that you can fly free without these enormous parental entanglements to the degree that Chinese Jolinghu and Balinghu have. <laughs> So they have a lot of pressure on them. So maybe yeah, that will why grow. The, it will only grow more as they as the parents, parents age. That's true. So they're less optimistic. What were the other traits that you um, mentioned? Um, also, um, less more risk averse. Uh-huh. And that one I can quite sort of see. Although you know, they, you will have some pushback from that. People say you can't really say that about a whole nation. There's right. plenty of people not who are risk taking. Not that guy. Not the guy who went. Not this one. <laughs> yeah. But I can quite sort of see, you know, at least the parental pressure. You know, if you only have one child, um, and you want them all to have safe jobs and, and take care of you in 
the future, then there's less of a, you know, parental encouragement to say, encourage you to do a startup, for example, right? right? Especially for girls, you know? So they have less personal dreams, I think. That, that was way. my theory. But of course, for a huge nation, there's still plenty of people mm-hmm. with plenty of dreams. And one of the people I profiled was this young man called Liu Ting, who is probably one of the most famous little emperors out there. Uh, because he took his mother to college with him, and they made him a national hero, and it had a huge campaign around him. She was sick, so he had to she take had care sick, of her. So he had to take care of her. So, um, so they had a national campaign to give him medals and things. And I was always curious if Liu Ting would have less dreams, less potential, because he always had this, you know, burden or awareness that he had to bring his mother wherever he went, and he couldn't go anywhere. To he couldn't take a job in another city without bringing her along, for example. And and it seemed to me like over the years that I followed him that that seemed to be the case, but I was wrong because in in the year, years later he told me he had a big dream. He wanted to be a woman. <laughs> And he had um, surgery, gender reassignment surgery, and he's gone on to take part in beauty pageants and things like that. So it was completely different to what I had anticipated. And I was at two minds about whether to put that in the story. But in the end, I put it in the story because I wanted to show that people can surprise you. Mm-hmm. And that and is so a surprise. People can surprise you. And the problem with the one-child policy was this whole unwillingness to recognize human potential and to view people in general as mouths to feed rather than as resources. That is Mei Feng, the author of One Child, the story of China's most radical experiment. Thanks for tuning in Eye on China. I'm Natalie So. Welcome to Chinese to Go, the program where you learn authentic Chinese, the Chinese that we use in real life in Taiwan. A friend of mine lost her cell phone recently, and she was very upset about it because she has already lost two cell phones. Let's listen to a conversation. You今天看起来不太快乐，都不说话，有什么不对吗？我手机丢了。手机丢了，什么时候丢的？丢在什么地方？我也不知道，可能是上午上班途中。没有手机很不方便，不能打电话。太不方便了。The guy began the conversation by saying that 你今天看起来不太快乐，都不说话。有什么不对吗? You don't look very happy today. You don't talk. Is there anything wrong? 你今天看起来不太快乐。你, you, 今天, today, 看起来, it looks like, it seems like, 不太快乐, not very happy, 快乐, happy. 都不说话。都 means also, but here, 都不说话 means 
You don't talk either. 说话 to talk. 不说话 don't talk. 有什么不对吗 Is there anything wrong? 什么 anything 不对 wrong. 我手机丢了 The woman said, "I lost my cell phone." 我 I 手机 cell phone 丢 to lose. 我手机丢了 I lost my cell phone. 手机丢了什么时候丢的丢在什么地方 The guy said, "You lost your cell phone. When did you lose it? Where did you lose it?" 手机丢了手机丢了 Lost your cell phone. Once again, 手机 cell phone 丢 to lose. 什么时候丢的什么时候丢的 When did you lose it? 什么时候 When or at what time? 丢在什么地方？丢在什么地方 ？Where did you lose it? 什么地方 ？Where? 地方 means place. 我也不知道，可能是上午上班途中。I have no idea. It's probably on my way to work in the morning. 我也不知道。我 ，I， 不知道。No idea. 可能是上午上班途中。It's probably on my way to work in the morning. 可能 ，probably， 上午 ，in the morning， 上班途中 ，on my way to work， 上班 ，to go to work， 上班途中 ，on one's way to work， 途中 ，on one's way to a place。没有手机很不方便，不能打电话。Without a cell phone, it's so inconvenient. Can't make a phone call. 没有手机很不方便。没有手机 ，without a cell phone， 很不方便。It's so inconvenient. 不方便 ，inconvenient. 不能打电话。不能打电话。Can't make a phone call. 打 usually means hit, but here 打电话 means to make a phone call. 电话 means the telephone. 太不方便了，太不方便了。It's super inconvenient. Before we end today's program, let's listen to the conversation at slow speed again. 你今天看起来不太快乐，都不说话，有什么不对吗？我手机丢了。手机丢了。什么时候丢的？丢在什么地方？我也不知道，可能是上午上班途中。没有手机很不方便，不能打电话。太不方便了。To download today's text, go to english.rti.org.tw. See you next week. 
Thanks so much for joining us today here on Radio Taiwan International. I'm John Van Trieste, joined here in the studio once again by Shirley Lin and Paula Chow, and we're here to leave you with one more thing. Today, Shirley has the, wor- the last word. She's here to bring you the harrowing story of a woman trapped in an elevator who used her wits to get out. Yes, we're talking about um, Sichuan province in China. Um, there's this uh, junior high school uh, female teacher, and um, she was getting off work. And as she walked into her elevator of an uh, apartment complex, um, halfway through her ride, it just stopped. Um, the elevator just stopped right there. And she's the only one in the elevator. I mean, if any one of us were stuck in there, I think I would be like really scared of my wits. If there were other people in there, I would have been felt. I would probably feel better. But she was by herself. Now she pressed the emergency button. No response. Nobody answered. Nothing. And then she, there was no um, connection for her mobile phone. She couldn't do no a signal, thing. Right? No signal. So um, then she thought and thought. She actually got um, one of these um, sort of like a poster inside the elevator, and she wrote on the back of it, "Help" in Chinese. 救救命 and then she also took a, a couple of dollar bills, which uh, came to about maybe fifteen U.S. dollars, and um, and she put it right in the in the seam, you know, of the uh, elevator door. Okay, so the little oh. crack between the two. Yeah, right between the two doors, and and stuck the poster, you know, with the with the word help on it, and then a couple of dollar bills, and I honestly don't know how long she waited because um, if you think about it, junior high school classes get out about. Well, here in town at about four p.m., so let's say she got home about five. Maybe she could have been stuck in the elevator for about an hour because a little after six p.m., Mr. Lee um, was like walking to the building, and then he saw this piece of paper sticking out of the elevator doors, and she wondered what it was. So he took it, took it and and opened it up and saw the two words, you know, uh, saying "help." Uh, and then, and then later, he discovered these dollar bills stuck in the middle too, in the door. So then he kind of shouted, and then he he heard something from the elevator mm-hmm. itself. So he figured that really it's just not a, a prank or anything like that. So he figured it's true. It's true that someone stuck in there. So he got help, and luckily, you know, the teacher got out and everything. So um, basically, people were. I guess she posted a story on 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 the internet, and people were like responding. Others were saying like, when you're in emergency, when you're in distress, you know, you you do anything. You can think of anything. Mm-hmm. So, and then the other thing is like, it's important to have money on you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, I was thinking like, it's so true. I mean, that could be the motivating know, factor, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, uh, you don't want to be doing something for no reward or something like that. That kind of just just pushes you to do something about it. So, I mean, if you were stuck in the elevator by yourself, what would you? How would you feel, and how would, what would you do? I mean, I, I would just panic if it's if I'm by myself. It, it's just too scary to think. It's it's almost like having my son being lost for thirty minutes because that happened when he was little in an elevator. No, not in an elevator, but he was he disappeared. Oh, so that kind of a feeling. <laughs> yes, I the would. Panic sets in. You know, yeah. But if there were other people in there, I'd feel better. Would you? Um... I would. Everybody can just. Um, you know, kind of Everyone's like stuck. Trying, everyone's I stuck. I got stuck but... once. Well, at RTI, I've been stuck in the here elevator too. for how? What? Yeah. For how we, long? So we both have this experience, but right. separately. Okay. I've never trusted that elevator since. 
Right. Oh, for, really? Just for, I, I guess, less than 10 minutes. In my case, it was my own... 10 minutes? Paula, that's a long time. It is a long time. In my case, I, it was I my own stupidity, because I forgot that it was a typhoon outside and the power went out. Oh. Uh, Carlson wrenched open the doors. Oh, <laughs> seriously? So, uh, Superman? Uh, Carlson? Yeah, it was a few years ago, Whoa, and I've never gone that out of it ever again. Oh, so. but I think it's good to have cash on you, yes. I think, <laughs> according to Shirley's this case. life tips. <laughs> Well, that's all from us today here at Radio Taiwan International's English Service. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow when our shows will include Taiwan Today and Live from Taipei. For now, though, from all of us here in Taipei, thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also, visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.